Okay. Um, so, welcome back to Sunday School after a bit of an Easter break. We, um, we've, at second half of last term, we were following the story of the Bible through. And that's what I want to pick up for about another three weeks or so, three or four weeks this morning. Um, so not this morning, three or four weeks this term. And then we're going to do a different series in about a month's time. And where we left um, Israel was basically dead and buried. So the book of two kings, which is the last book we looked at, the book of two kings tells the story um, of how Israel, the northern kingdom, remember the 12 tribes were split into two countries after Solomon, the northern kingdom, the 10 tribes in the north, they were destroyed by the Assyrians, scattered um, and what was known as Samaria, the northern kingdom, Israel or Samaria, then got repopulated by all sorts of difference of nations. So they were basically wiped off the map. And Judah, the southern kingdom, which had the Davidic kings, you know, the children of David, the sons of David who'd been promised to reign forever, had the temple and the palace, the priesthood. Eventually, even they were taken into exile in Babylon and the city and the temple were destroyed. So the question really then is, where do you go next? Now, this is a, a, a slight detour, um, but hopefully helpful. I wonder if you ever thought about why the books in, the, in your Bibles are ordered as they are. As in, why is it Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and so on? So, some of the really obvious ones, pretty obvious to start with Genesis, making the world, that kind of makes sense. Um, but but, but why, why the order after that? One of the interesting things is that, that the, the Jews order the books of the Old Testament differently to us. So if you were to pick up three Bibles... A Jewish one, obviously, which only has what we would call the Old Testament. A Protestant one and a Catholic one, they'd all be different. The Jewish one and the Protestant one would have the same books, but in, just in different orders. The Catholic one would add in some extra books. Okay? So the first bit of good news is, if you've got a Protestant Bible, which is what you've got on your tables in front of you, if you've got a Protestant Bible, you're using the same Old Testament as Jesus was, okay? So our Bible and what was accepted as the canon, the word of God in the time of Jesus are the same. Um, now the ordering, I don't think is, it's not, a, it's not an essential thing, okay? So the ordering you can do what you like with. But interestingly, the, the Jews ordered their Bibles differently. And so in the days of Jesus, it is likely that their kind of the understanding was more in, in this way. Um, I put on your verse, on your sheet there, Luke 24, 44. Remember Jesus walking along the Emmaus Road with the disciples. He's risen from the dead. He's talking to them about the Old Testament. He says this. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Those three sections, law, prophets, and then Psalms, or sometimes writings, are the three sections of a Jewish Old Testament. Um, the law, Hebrew, the Torah, the prophets, in Hebrew, Nevim, and the writings, the Ketuvim. And I put a little diagram on the right there. You'll see, it's a bit small, sorry. But you'll see the law is just the first five books, the Torah, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Then the next section is the prophets. And if you look at the prophets, in the Jewish understanding, the prophets aren't just the kind of Isaiah's, Jeremiah's, but they are Joshua, Judges, Samuel, which is one book, one, two, Samuel, and Kings, one or two Kings, one book. And then, they're called the former prophets, then you get the later prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the twelve ones. 
And then you go into the writings. The Psalms is the kind of head of the writings, so that's why Jesus says Psalms rather than writings. Psalms, Proverbs, Job, the, the five scrolls they're called, Song of Songs, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, and Esther. And then the Old Testament ends with Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, and 1 2 Chronicles. Um, the, the, the Jewish scriptures are known as the Tanakh, um, taking the first letters from each of those three sections Torah, um, Nevi'im, and, and Ketuim. So, TNK Tanakh. Uh, one, one way of saying that this morning, other than it's you know, vaguely interesting, uh, it means that it, as we're following the story of the Bible through, if we were following it in the kind of canonical order that Jesus would have had the Old Testament, given that we finished Kings, where would we go next? We'd go actually to the major prophets. Um, so from Kings to the major prophets. Uh, and that's what we're going to look at today. Um, we're going to look at Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. They're obviously huge books, so we're going to be very sort of overview-y. And then we'll return in the next few weeks to sort of finish off the rest of the story as it, as it is picked up in um, Daniel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. So, three big prophets. Each one, what, 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 if you're going to get anything in your heads about what the prophets are about, because okay, they are one of the parts of Scripture that most confuses us, if we're honest, aren't they? Especially the big long ones, you know, Jeremiah... Isaiah, Ezekiel, they're big, long books. There's some complicated stuff in there. Big picture, what are they all about? They're all about the death and resurrection of Israel. That Israel, God's people, are going to be destroyed, die, as it were, through exile, through various judgments. But then God will raise them back to life. Uh, There are going to be all sorts of promises of of a new hope. So let's take them one by one in in the order they are in in that Jewish Bible. Isaiah first. Um, Isaiah is the earliest of these three major prophets. Isaiah 1.1 begins in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah. Um, so we're looking, um, well, Uzziah dies in 740 BC. So um, Isaiah begins his ministry then in the days that Uzziah dies. Uh, and he prophesies at least 681. And his ministry basically, if you read through Isaiah, it's basically about three areas, three periods, if you like. Through the first 39 chapters, he talks about his own time. And he is living in the time before Israel and Judah have been destroyed. Okay, so he's a bit earlier. He's living in the time when Assyria are the big threat. And because he's in the south, in Judah, he's constantly warning. Those first 39 chapters, he's warning um, Judah not to sort of go the way of Israel, not to go the way of other kind of align with other countries, uh, but instead to keep trusting God. Don't trust anyone other than Yahweh. So he's speaking, in other words, to the dangers of his own day. But then in the middle section, we'll, we'll look at some of this in a, in a moment. In the middle section, 40 through 55, he, he, he looks forward and he speaks to those who are in exile. But the thing is, at the point that Isaiah writes, they aren't in exile. The Babylonian exile hasn't happened. That's still another you know, couple hundred years in the future. Or at least a hundred odd years in the future. That, that's one of the reasons, by the way, sometimes you'll hear people say, well, Isaiah can't have been written till much much later well there must be different you know different people read Isaiah at different points because he can't possibly be he actually names Cyrus okay who's a Persian king he can't possibly have done that if he's writing in the kind of 700s because Cyrus wasn't born for another couple hundred years um of course he can if he's filled by the Holy Spirit so that middle section uh which we're gonna look at in a sec that middle section is um, speaking to those who are in exile, even though that hasn't yet come, and promising them that restoration will come, resurrection will come. So just accept the exile, 
and wait for a rescue from this servant of the Lord who's going to come and rescue you. And then the very last bit, the last 10 chapters, are spoken to those who've returned from exile and basically making a bunch of promises about how things will be even greater in the future. So what I want to do, in, we know about the judgment. We've seen that in, at the end of our um, King's sort of studies last term. We know that Israel goes into judgment. Judah goes into judgment. They go into exile. They're destroyed. So I'm going to look, focus on the, the resurrection, the hope. So come with me to, first of all, Isaiah 11. Isaiah more or less in the middle of your Bibles after Psalms. Unless you have to have bought a Jewish Bible with you, in which case bonus points. But um, three glimpses of hope in Isaiah. First of all, Isaiah 11. Verse 1. There shall come forth, so he's looking to the future. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. On it goes, this description of this man who will come from Jesse. Now, Jesse, remember Jesse is Jesse's David's father. Um, David, as in King David's father, is called Jesse. So Isaiah is prophesying one day, amidst all this judgment that's going on. So if you look at the kind of... If you look at the, the chapters around or before, it's all kind of disaster and judgment. But one day, one of David's sons will be born. He'll be full of the Spirit. So there's some hope. As you go on in Isaiah, we don't just get prophesied a, a new David. We get told about a new Exodus. Isaiah 40. So we're going to be sipping around a little bit today. But they're big books. So Isaiah 40. Now, by this stage, Isaiah is, is speaking, he's looking down the tunnel of time and speaking to those who are in exile, even though it hasn't happened. And he preaches, comfort, 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 my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem, cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she, she's received from the Lord hand, double for all her sins. He says, there's good news coming, comfort, comfort, my people, says God. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain shall be uh, made low. Uneven ground shall become a level. Shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Uh, and then as you go on, you see that th- this language is going to make clear the desert. God's kind of come through the desert. It's going to be a new exodus, essentially. So however good the first Exodus was, Isaiah says, this new one is going to be even better. This return from exile is going to be like a new Exodus. And all of it, strangely, is going to happen ultimately through God's servant. So um, perhaps the most famous portions of Isaiah are, known, are, are the, the servant songs. Um, let's just flick to the most famous, Isaiah 53. You get to Isaiah 53. How is God going to be able to pardon iniquity? How is he going to uh, deal with the problem of sin? Isaiah, well, in fact, Isaiah, it's the end of Isaiah 52. There are various of these songs about the servant. This is just one of them. Behold, verse 13, sorry. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. 
as many were astonished at you, speaking to the servant. His appearance was so marred beyond human um, semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So will he sprinkle many nations. What's the sprinkling? You, you sprinkle it, pass it, you sprinkle the blood to cleanse them. By the way, that's one of the reasons we sprinkle in baptism, picture of language being picked up. This servant is going to sprinkle clean many nations. And the song goes on. We'll skip down to the most famous bit. Uh, verse uh, 4. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. He was este- Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the, the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Uh, on we can go through the... Uh, the book of Isaiah, and see how this servant is going to change everything. We learned earlier in the book, Isaiah 11, he's going to be a descendant of David. He's going to be full of the spirit. He's going to bring a new exodus. And now he's going to be this suffering servant. So it's not going to be a triumphant arrival where he arrives in Jerusalem in a chariot or, I don't know, descends with angels from heaven. He's going to bring these new glories, ultimately through suffering. So there we go. There's Isaiah. In about five minutes. Um, let's look at Jeremiah. And then you're going to do a bit of work yourselves on, on Ezekiel. So, Jeremiah. Jeremiah is later. Um, he's, he, he begins in Josiah. this good king Josiah. And he, he lives right the way through to the destruction of Jerusalem. So he's in, he's in the southern kingdom in Judah. And he lives in Jerusalem. He's a contemporary of Ezekiel and Daniel. So they, they all live at the same time. But um, Jeremiah is in Jerusalem. Whereas Ezekiel is taken into exile. So Jeremiah lives through the death uh, of Judah. Um, so next book after Isaiah. So if you just flick over from Isaiah, you find um, Jeremiah. Jeremiah's ministry is going to be one again of death and resurrection. Or in the language of Jeremiah 1, what does God tell him to do? So Jeremiah 1, uh, verse 9. Then the Lord put out his hand, touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I put my words in your mouth. That's what a prophet is, by the way. A prophet is someone who speaks God's words. We, we talk about God, and, but we're not prophets in that sense. Jeremiah is a walking, talking Bible, as it were. He is literally the voice of God. Bold, I put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and kingdoms to pluck up and break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. Basically, Jeremiah, you're going to do two things. You're going to destroy and you're going to build. It's death and resurrection again. It's going to be judgment and hope. Um, the, the, the death, the judgment, well, it's all about the exile again. Jeremiah keeps saying it's going to happen. There's no point resisting it. Um, it's going to happen. You are going to be destroyed. And Jeremiah predicts that it's going to last 70 years. This is going to be really important. Um, so one example, Jeremiah 25 when you're sent off into captivity, says Jeremiah, it just will last 70 years. Jeremiah 25, uh, verse 8. This is before it's happened, but predicting the, this Babylonian exile. 25, verse 8. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because, my people, you've not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant even calls Nebuchadnezzar his servant. And I'll bring them against this land, Judah, 
and its inhabitants, and against all the surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish from them the voice of mirth, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the bride, the grinding of the millstones, the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then, after 70 years are completed, I'll punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians again, for their iniquity, making their land a waste. I'll bring upon that land all the words that I've uttered against it. So, 70 years, Babylon's going to be top dog, going to destroy you, you're going to be in exile, but after those 70 years, I'm going to destroy Babylon. Okay, Babylon will fall, as indeed it does. That's really important because Jeremiah is saying to the people, you're going into exile, there is nothing you can do about it, and you're just going to have to accept it. It will last 70 years, and after that, God will restore you. But until then, flourish in exile. Um, If you were doing sort of famous passages from Isaiah, it would probably be the servant bit that we read, it appears for our transgressions. I suspect... In, um, in Jeremiah, it'll be Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah writes to the exiles and says this, Jeremiah 29, verse 10 and 11. Thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I'll visit you, I'll fulfill, you, I'll fulfill my promise to you and bring you back to this place. And here's the, probably the most famous, most quoted verse from Isaiah. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Um, I will restore you. My plans are to bless you. But until then, if you look up to verse 7, seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for its welfare. In other words, don't be, I don't want you there as kind of terrorists in Babylon trying to pull it down. I don't want you there as freedom fighters. I've sent you into exile. It will happen. It will last 70 years. So seek the blessing of Babylon. Um, until I come and rescue you. So judgment will fall, death will fall, but again there'll be resurrection. Partly because the 70 years are going to finish. But right in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah is one of those books, if you try and read it through, it, it's, there is an awful lot of judgment. But right in the middle, chapters 30 to 33, there's a little section that's known as the book of consolation, book of comfort. And it promises, God promises rather, in that little section, again, that, that everything will be restored. So if you look, if you look at chapter 30, what, what is promised, again, we'll have to dip in, but chapter 13 and verse 18. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will restore the fortunes of the tents of Jacob and have compassion on his dwellings. The city shall be rebuilt on its mound, on its mountain, and the palace shall stand where it used to be. So I, I will restore Jerusalem. Uh, look down to verse 22. You shall be my people and I will be your God. I will restore that covenant relationship. Remember that theme, I will be your God, the Emmanuel theme. You will be my people, I will be your God. That will be true again. There's going to be a new covenant, chapter 31, on a few verses. Uh, verse 31, 31, 31. Remember, there's no work, there's no, you never read in the Bible about God entering into a relationship with people. It's always a covenant. So we don't, the Bible doesn't talk about relationship with God, it talks about covenant with God. Behold, the days are coming, said the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. 
we're going to look at that new covenant in a, in a few weeks' time. Um, oh, sorry, I skipped over one. 3122. Oh, uh, no, that's not right. Oh, what have I done there? Got the wrong verse. No, lost it. Sorry. Anyway, somewhere he prophesies a new David, but I can't find that. Um, it's, he, no, it's, it's good. It must be... Oh, that's gutted. How have I got the wrong verse? It must be in there somewhere. Um, 22. Okay, so it's one of the 22s. Uh, is it 30, 22? It's such a good verse. Oh, gutted. Anyway, if anyone could see the word Abraham somewhere in those chapters, um, bonus points. Um, because what, amazingly, what God, and this is really significant actually, um, must be 3322 maybe. Yeah, 3322. Yes, 3322. There we go. Sorry. Do you remember the promise to Abraham? God takes the Abraham outside and says, look at the stars of heaven or the, you know, the sand on the beach. So will your descendants be. And that's, been, that's constantly been sort of um, referred back to. In Jeremiah, it's sort of, I don't know how you explain it, it's changed or... Uh, anyway, 33-22. As the host of heaven, so the stars of heaven can't be numbered, and the sands of the sea can't be measured, so I will multiply the offspring of David, my servant. And the biblical priest who ministered to me. Suddenly it's David who's going to have offspring, greater than the number of stars in the sky or, or sand in the sand on the beach you know, I, think, oh, I thought it was going to be Abraham now it's David um, what's the significance of that well Jesus is going to be Matthew's gospel begins by saying Jesus is the descendant of Abraham and David David is ultimately descendant of Abraham too and so he's saying Jesus' offspring are going to be greater than the, the, the number of stars in the sky or, or, or sand on the beach obviously not physical genetic kids um, because Jesus doesn't have any physical genetic kids but rather, all the sons of God, everyone that Jesus will uh, bring into his family. So a new covenant, a new David, and then this last bit, I love this bit, um, a new land. So God says, the, remember the, the, the land is, is, is about to be destroyed. And in the middle of a siege, so, so imagine um, Nebuchadnezzar's armies, the great empire, Babylon, they're all around the city. Jeremiah's stuck in the city having a hard time and everyone hates him because he told them it was going to happen and... So in the middle of the siege, God says to Jeremiah, um, sometimes prophets, they get such a rough deal. Um, chapter 32. Um, uh, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the 10th year of Zedekiah, which was the 18th of Nebuchadnezzar, at that time, the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem. And Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the guard. He's basically in prison. Um, uh, what are you process saying this is what's going to happen you know you're going to lose they, they don't like the idea that God is definitely going to um, uh, destroy them verse 6 Jeremiah said the word of the Lord came to me so God comes to him and says behold Hanamel the son of Shalom your uncle here's your cousin he's going to come to you and say um, buy, buy, do you want to buy my field um, that's Anathoth um, and, look, do, do you want to buy a field in the middle of a siege Okay, this essentially is someone comes to you now going, I've got a great time share. I've got a lovely holiday villa in, in Ukraine. Um, do you want to buy it? Full price. Um, it, it's a totally mad time to buy anything. 
So his cousin's really trying it on. Uh, you do, of course I don't want to buy a field where the army is literally outside about to destroy everything and I'm the prophet who keeps telling you it's going to happen. There's no escape. But God says, yep, you've got to buy it. Uh, verse 8, buy my field. Oh, sorry, yeah. Then I knew this was the word of the Lord. And I bought the field at Anathoth from Hanamai, my, my cousin, and weighed out the money to him, 17 shekels of silver. I signed the deal, seemed it, got witnesses. Okay, it's a lot of money. Um, uh, verse 16. Okay, so he's just shelled out a load of money for a place that's about to get absolutely destroyed. His cousin's laughing his head off. Um, verse 16. After I'd given the deed of purchase to Barak, son of Nera, I prayed to the Lord, saying, Ah, oh, Lord God, it's you who made the heavens and the earth by your great power, by your outstretched arm. Nothing's too hard for you. Um, so he gives the prayer, you know, you steadfast love, repay guilt. Um, <laughs> but basically, um, yet you, O Lord, sorry, verse 25, you told me buy a field. Basically, what the heck is going on? Okay, what, why on earth are you telling me um, to buy a field? Verse 26, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Those are, it's not mad, Jeremiah, to buy, invest in property if I've said that land will flourish again. And those words are exactly the same words as God said to Abraham and Sarah when he promised them a child, even though they were way too old to have kids. Is anything too hard for me? So God is giving that kind of new life, resurrection life promise to Jeremiah. The land will flourish again. And it's acted out in this kind of real life parable that, that Jeremiah is willing to buy property in the middle of a war zone because he ultimately, God promises, it will flourish again. So again, death and resurrection. Hope in the midst uh, of judgment. Isaiah, Jeremiah, and then finally Ezekiel. Uh, Ezekiel's a, a contemporary of, of Jeremiah, um, but he's taken off in exile. He's a priest. He's taken off in exile to Babylon. When the, when the city falls and, and um, Nebuchadnezzar decides to take a bunch of people away, he goes. And he sees in a vision. We looked at this last time. He sees in a vision, even though he's millions of miles away, he sees God's glory cloud leave the, the temple. God moves out, heads east. And again, he, he speaks loads about judgment. Everything's going to be death and judgment. But, as ever, just like Isaiah and Jeremiah, there is hope. So, round tables for long enough have a look at um, one of those properties of hope Ezekiel 34 um, if you read 1 to 6 and then there are other little sections to read as you go through just have a little look it's this whole area of the, the shepherd who's going to come um, hopefully that it's self-explanatory but um, yeah over to you have a little go around tables okay let's come back together don't worry if you're not quite got through them a really big picture the, the, the critique okay these aren't going to be rhetorical what's the critique what's the problem in Israel who had the problem bad leadership exactly the shepherds the leaders the elders bad leadership um, who what's it what was on this question yeah in the first section what's going to be the answer 11 to 16 what's the answer going to be to the problem Yeah, thanks to you. Uh, it's good to have a razor sharp theologian in the room. <laughs> and where's that good leadership going to come from? God. Yeah, God. Yeah, okay. God, literally, God's. Gonna, so, verse 15 I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. 
Okay, I, I'm going to come and be the shepherd, says God. Verse, and then you go on, he keeps talking. Um, uh, verse 23, I will set o- over them one shepherd. Okay, there's only going to be one shepherd. My servant, David. So we want David's descendants. Well, David's dead, so it's going to have to be a descendant. So I'm going to be the shepherd. And then five sentences later, David is going to be the shepherd. Okay, it's just amazing, subtle prophecy of the Lord Jesus, who is both Yahweh, is God, but also is a descendant of David, God and man. Sometimes people say, you know, there's no way of knowing from the Old Testament. You could never see coming that God was going to become in the flesh. But actually, I mean, I'm not saying, <laughs> I'm by no means saying I would have spotted it back then. And, you know, but, but when you read the Old Testament, oh, man, that, yeah, look at that. Look how that works out. Um, and therefore you get a beautiful description of the character of, of God wanting to gather the sheep and obviously loads of fulfillment there. Um, Jesus, the good shepherd. Um, a couple of last things on Ezekiel, then we need to, need to wrap up. Um, so loads of judgment, hope, resurrection, hope, the shepherd's going to come. Um, Ezekiel 36. Oh, we're not going to have time to look at most of this. Um, again, lots of similar promises. I'll gather you back together. I'll sprinkle you clean. I'll give you a new heart, new spirit. Um, let's go to a couple of interesting ones that are, uh, we're unlikely to return to. We'll come back to the new covenant promises. 37. That's the famous dry bones passage. Yeah, but the, the bones. Are, it's such a great... Um, uh, chapter 37, verse 1. The hand of the Lord was upon me. He brought me to the middle of a valley it was full of bones he led me among the bones and behold there were many and they were very dry and he said to me son of man can these bones live it's such a great answer I answered oh lord god you know um, it's, such a it's just great it's kind of like I, I, yeah I know I shouldn't say no um, equally yeah and then he prophesies and the bones come to life the breath of the word combine and they come to life um but one less well-known part of this chapter, if you look down to verse 15. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, take a stick and write on it, Judah, and the people of Israel associated with him. And they take another stick and write on it, Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and the house of Israel associated with him. So you've got two sticks, Judah and Israel, basically. Remember the two halves of the country that got split in half? Two sticks. Write the names of them. Verse 17, join them to one another into one stick that they may become one in your hand. And when people say, what are you doing? Ezekiel's always doing weird things. Um, verse 19, say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I'm about to take the stick of Joseph, that's in Israel, and I'll join it with the stick of Judah and make them one stick again. I said, I'm going to bring everyone back together, bind them back together, one people. Um, think of Jesus and the Samaritans. You know, Jews want rid of the Samaritans, Jesus, Samaritan woman, or, yeah, in, in they come. The gospel goes to Samaria, it's a huge thing, in the beginning of Acts. Um, Jesus, sorry, um, the disciples are told they're going to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Jerusalem, capital city of the Jews, the Judeites, Judah, the country of the Judeites, you know, the, the good one, essentially. But then Samaria is, is brought back in through the gospel, and then the ends of the earth, that's the rest of us. Gentiles. And then just finally, Ezekiel ends. So you've got restored people, but Ezekiel ends. The last um, eight chapters are all about this new temple. It's a really complicated picture of this enormous new temple that gets built. Um, and he's, prof- he's prophesying it. Okay, It's not actually being built. He's prophesying it. Um, loads of detail. I by no means understand most of it, but 
a few highlights. Come to chapter 43. Uh, then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east, so this inner vision. He sees the, the gate that's going east, and behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters. The earth shone with his glory. The vision I saw was just like the vision I had when he came to destroy the city. And the vision I had by the Kibar Canal. Uh, and I fell on my face as the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east. The spirit lifted up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple again. That the temple is refilled again. Remember, God left and went east into exile. East is always the direction going away from God. Adam and Eve are driven away from Eden. East. The temple and the tabernacle are built with the entrance of the east. So anytime you're going east, you're going away into exile. When Assyria takes the people into Israel, they all go off to the east. When Babylon takes Israel into exile, they go off to the east. East is always bad exile. And so now from exile, God returns and fills the temple again. The question is when? When do we see that happen? We'll think about this in maybe in a couple of weeks' time. But it doesn't happen when they physically rebuild the temple. The glory cloud never returns. The next time we see the, the uh, fire, the rushing wind noises, and a temple being filled with God is at Pentecost. And the Spirit is poured out, and the temple of the Holy Spirit, the church, is filled uh, with God's glory. That, by the way, is one of the really significant differences in how you read the Bible. Um, oh, this not, but um, some people read these prophecies and think they will be literally fulfilled. There is a duty on Christians to rebuild a physical temple in Jerusalem like Ezekiel describes. Um, that, I think that is well-meaning but mistaken. Because they're wanting to take the Bible seriously, so I'll, you know, I'm into that. But I think it's a mistake. These are pictures that are fulfilled in even greater ways. So we're not waiting for a physical temple to be rebuilt. Rather, as Jesus says, or, or Jesus says, his body is the temple destroyed and risen. And then Paul says... You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So the temple is the, the church, the people, not a physical building. And, and amazingly, if you look on, what does this temple do? 47. Do you remember in the, in the actual physical temple, there was the, the, the altar, the place of sacrifice, then there's a great a basin of water. But there's no basin in this temple. Instead, there's a river, 47. Uh, he took me to the temple. Behold, the water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. Okay, never, never miss it. The water, so instead of a basin, it's a river flowing out of the temple. So this cleansing water isn't stuck in the temple. It's going out to the east, to the lands of exile. Um, and out it flows, and it gets deeper and deeper. So in verse um, 3, it's ankle deep. Uh, and then verse 4, he goes on a bit further. Then it's knee deep, and then it's waist deep. Um, and then it's so high that it's, you know, deep enough to swim in. So this ever-deepening river flows from the temple. And what does it do? Uh, it brings life. So uh, one example, verse, oh, well, verse 7. I went back, I saw on the bank of the river many trees on one side and the other. It's, it's like Eden. In fact, that Edenic language is used uh, in Ezekiel um, explicitly. Um, verse 9, it's making the Dead Sea fresh. Um, uh, because the water is the life-giving water. In other words, it is the, the, the temple. Remember, the temple also is Jesus. Through the temple, flow, from the temple flows this water that, that deepens and deepens and deepens and brings life. John says, 
when he talks about the rivers of living water that flow, John says Jesus is talking about the Spirit. Okay, the, the water flowing is a picture of the Spirit who is poured out through Jesus' temple body, broken and restored. Not just on the Jews, but out to the east, out to us in exile to bring us to life. And that just grows and grows, deepens and deepens and deepens. Um, it's a wonderful prophecy of um, the new covenant age. And on that note, let me finish, let me pray, and then we'll get to Our Father in heaven, we pray this morning that your spirit would um, again flow to us from the Lord Jesus. Um, the spirit is, your spirit is the, the gift we need um, and on whom we must rely entirely for all our life. And so um, through the, the word preached this morning, uh, we pray that um, your spirit might accompany that word and I like that the dry bones bring us to life. I pray for any who are um, as yet outside your kingdom who come along later that they will be brought to life for the first time. Those of us who feel dry and withered would the spirit refresh us, uh, renew us. Uh, we pray that we would rely utterly on him. In your grace and your mercy, bless us, we pray, our Father, and through the great temple of the Lord Jesus. Amen.